Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with Craig O'Shaughnessy, just in time to do a Miami Open wrap-up from somebody that was boots on the ground, sitting courtside, uh, and also take a look ahead to the clay court season. What do we... Can we can we draw anything from the, the the sunshine double to take forward with the clay, or do we expect to see a whole new cast of characters on the men's and women's side do well in the next two months? So we're talking about it. Craig. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure as always. Love talking about tournaments. Yes, I was in Miami for the first week, so uh, I got to see some. You know, it, it it is so different when you watch a match on TV with the camera behind. And, and you watch a match on the side of the court, you know, it's sitting there watching the arc of the ball, the speed of the ball, the depth of the ball. You get to see both players. You get to see the anticipation. You know, it, quite often watching tennis, you know, on TV is great. Sometimes that's all we've got. But you do really get a different appreciation for what players are doing to each other when you can kind of sit on the side or even right behind but um, watching live is, is still way better than watching on TV. So what matches stuck out? What matches were you sitting on the sideline and were able to draw some from? I mean, I, I, there were a few matches that stuck out to me that I think defined the tournament. A, matches I was looking forward to that didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Well, I, wasn't, I wasn't there at the end of the tournament, but at the start of the tournament, um, you know, watching Pass and Hatchinov, I think Hatchinov's doing very, very well. I think he's he's coming back. He's surging again. He's had good results. But he's improved areas of his game that were weak. And, you know, for a while I was working with um, Jan Leonard Struff and, and a couple of other players on tour, you know, at various rankings. And Hatchinov would pop up as an opponent. And the game plan against him was... He absolutely loved the runaround forehand. He loved to hit his backhand cross court, just really enjoyed that. And if he got a short backhand, he'd go down the line. But in general, he was just an ad court specialist that was slow moving to his forehand, out to position A, out wide in that juice court. And because of his, you know, his serpent-like forehand backswing, he would shank a lot of balls and miss a lot. And he's really cleaned that up. He's really done a good job of actually being on defense and playing defense and taking that ball cross court and not trying to flick the daylights out of it with his wrist. So um, I saw, you know, um, Stefanos has been injured. He's had, you know, a wrist problem in the last couple of months. He's had a shoulder problem. He's been a little nicked up. He wasn't at his peak. Um, Hachinov had never beaten Stefanos, I think 5-0, and but I saw this one coming in. I saw the uh, confidence and the resurgence of Karen, and I saw 
Stefanos not at the peak of his game. And, um, you know, Hachinov, that's, that's big for him to get a win there and, and to go deep in the tournament. And I think he also feeds off when all of the Russians are doing well, when Rublev's doing well, when Medvedev's do, doing well. It seems all of them pick each other up and carry themselves deeper into the draw. Same for the Americans. It's almost like exactly you know, we can't let one outshine. We're all we're, we're all in it. We gotta like sort of like stay in the pack. Um, I agree. I think Tissipas, you know, he had by first round, walk over second round, struggled mm-hmm. in Christian Guerin. Yes, right? struggled. Yes, uh, and so after that match, when I watched that match, I thought, okay, you know, if Hachinov just doesn't blow it, this is his chance. Yes, to get a win, and he and to his credit. He took advantage of it. He played Sarundlo in the next round, which was, you know, comparatively a very straightforward match. Uh, and he took advantage of the tournament. The match I was looking forward to that did not disappoint is Tommy Paul and Alcaraz. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Four and four. I think Tommy Paul didn't believe. I think if you, if you look at Alcaraz's face several times during that match, mm-hmm. he was actually shocked to see somebody as fast. Mm-hmm as him and cover as much court. And I think that is the biggest development. If you look at Tommy over the past year, he was always a decent athlete. Mm-hmm. I think his just engine is just turning now. His effort is there. He's yeah. not giving up on as many points and he's making his opponents look and say, whoa, right? Mm-hmm. And I think Alcaraz on multiple occasions had to clap his hands towards A, the effort and B, just the speed. What did you take from that match? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that was, when you look back at players, you know, in the last decade, before they have that really big win, they have a really good loss where everything is there. They've made the table, everything is set, and they just couldn't quite get over the line. And I I think this was probably the, the loss that Tommy Paul said, I measured myself, I'm as fast as this guy, um, I'm as skillful as this guy. I didn't take care of a couple of big points or some opportunities that 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 were there. But um, you know, I expect Tommy Paul to do great in the clay court season. I think he's going to do really, really good. I think this was a good loss and a good tournament. I think his head's in a good place. Um, and you know, things take time. And and Tommy's Tommy's been on this nice burn, rising and and improving. And um, you know, I, I think Tommy Paul is is ready to win some tournaments, um, you know, some big tournaments. And I, I think that that loss was, was a great loss for him. Now, you see, Alcaraz, you and I talked about this pre-tournament, about the Alcaraz center match. What did you take? Yeah. I thought... Now, you, now, hang on one second. You picked center, so I've got <laughs> to give you props right there. Well, very well done. I, I only picked him because I felt like when you looked at, when you look at the draw, you look at Alcaraz's road, Yes. It would be tested. It was true. Right. It and was... by the, and Tommy and, and center can thank Tommy Paul for some of that. Test Absolutely. him. Let the pressure get to him. Let the thought of the sunshine double get to him. And center kind of took advantage of it. Um, take his legs away a little, run him hard. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of time recovery. You know, the downside we talked about is the winning the previous tournament is that you don't have as much time. Now you got to buy first round in this event. So maybe, yeah. you know, maybe that. Uh, that helped them a little bit, but it's still hot. It's still humid, right? People are still going to push you. And I thought center that I was looking for him to win. I'm glad he disappointed. He did not disappoint. I should have bet on it. I don't bet on tennis. But if I had, if I really believed in my pick, I probably could have made 
made some coin there, but that was a great match. Yeah, I agree. Um, full credit to Yannick. What, what was happening, I did an analysis of their match from the US Open um, in 2022, which I think was the quarterfinal. And one thing that stood out was Alcaraz attacking Sinner through the juice court, forehand to forehand. And I looked at the errors in that in that outside corner. So the, you have the ABCD. A is the out, outer half of the juice court. B is the inner half of the juice. C is the inner half of the ad. And D is out wide in, in the ad court. So in that match, I'm guessing now, but I think, I'm, I think I've got it within one. Um, Sinner made, I think, 37 forehand errors in A. He made nine in B, he made eight in C, and he made nine in D. It was an overwhelming throw the kitchen sink at Yannick's forehand out wide. And when I watched that match, I was tweeting away. I'm like, this is so much fun. And, and I like to tweet to share my thoughts with, with other you know tennis enthusiasts, but I also like to do it as as a reminder of moments in time, this is what happened. And, you know, too often you watch a match and you, and you forget things that happen. And when you're able to tweet about it, it's like, okay, I, I want to remember this. And, and, and throughout the match, I never felt that Carlos went after that corner. I felt that match was way more backhand to backhand, which suited Sinner. I have not since Novak have I seen such aggressive returning so many times Sinner, excuse me, Alcaraz would serve and he'd make a serve plus one error because Sinner's just annihilating the ball right back at him. I thought Yannick's game plan was better. I thought his execution was better. He's still not adept enough around the net. He still needs to be better at approaching and volleying and overheads and drop shots, all the peripheral things. Mm. I also thought he played his final in the semi. I think there was a mental component of that. It's like he was so up for that, but I didn't feel that in the final against Medvedev. But full marks to Yannick Sinner for a fantastic match. Yeah, when you look at we we call that that out wide forehand, we call that in range. And what, you see what? in range. End. End range. Got it. So you see some players that struggle, when, especially up high, right? If they're out wide yeah. forehand, yeah, and namely Rabakana. So that's another player that I think, you know, great forehand in the middle, great forehand a foot or two to the left of the center line, uh, great forehand, you know, two or three feet to the right. But once you get her out a little bit, that end range, start, the, the wrist starts to get a little bit weak, starts to get a little bit tip heavy with the racket. And I think, you know, I was surprised at Alcaraz did not go there when he needed to go there. Like in a big point, like go there. You know what I mean? You, you, I'm sure he was keeping track of what was going on because he's too great of a player not to keep track. But it was such a straightforward opportunity. Yeah. Some of the, especially in the middle of the point where the middle of the point wasn't going your way, you know, you yeah. had a backhand, backhand rally, just slide a backhand yeah. down the line just to get him out there. And I didn't see that when he needed to do it. Saw it a lot yeah. at 15 love, 15 all, did not see it enough in the last 25% of each game. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And he got a little perturbed. He got a little negative, a little chirpy, which you don't normally see. And I think it was just the frustration of of not feeling 100%. You know, I, did, I don't know. It was He's actually pulled out of, of Monte Carlo now. 
Um, I think it was something to do with his wrist and something to do somewhere else on his body. But you could just tell he, he, he wasn't at his peak. He wasn't, he didn't have a completely fit body. And these things add up. And he was a little more chirpy and a little more negative than normal. But I don't think he followed the game plan as well as he should have. I don't think he served enough to Sinner's forehand. Um, I think he served to the back end way too much on big points. And he didn't attack out wide and, you know, mixing in the drop and just, you know, as soon as he went to, I think he was down 4-1. And that's the first time we saw the drop shot, which was smart, but it was also a little bit late. So anyway, you know, full marks to Yannick. He's coming on. He looks so fit. He looks so ready. He's so mentally tough on the court. I like how he goes to the box and always shows confidence and aggression and toughness. And, um, you know, Yannick Sinner's time in the sun is coming. And it's going to be big moments. It's going to be grand slams. It's going to be finals of slams. Um, he is an absolute contender at, at the peak level of our sport. And I think that going into the clay court season where I think he's better, he's best on clay to me, right? So he's going into Madrid, going into Rome. These events is where I think with that win and the confidence that yeah. a player would draw from that win, yeah. uh, I think he's the one. We look at Rome, right? We look at, obviously, we're looking at Novak coming back, right, to the clay court swing. Uh, we're looking at what a Novak and Alcaraz could look like in the finals of Madrid or Rome. Uh, Monte Carlo. Or, Monte Carlo, right? Well, no, no Alcaraz there, but oh, you know, that's true. That's true. but um, you know, French Open, right? So I think yes. Yannick going into this clay court season, to me, if we look at the young players, young players, Alcaraz, Center, TFO, Paul, Fritz, Gorda, he's separating himself from that pack yeah. for the next two months, right? Uh, and like sort of the bottom of the next tier, which is the Novak, the Rafa, the Medvedev. Mm-hmm. Uh, Novak and Alcaraz. They're slightly behind Alcaraz to me, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what do we think about looking ahead? We're still with the men's side. Looking ahead to the clay court swing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about center. You know, Alcaraz said something a couple of days ago, which I thought was interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if it was an attempt to take the pressure off himself and throw it to Novak, but he said when Novak is healthy, he's the best player in the world. And as a coach, I'm thinking... I get the respect level. I get given, you know, given the uh, the legend is flowers, but I also want to know that you believe it as well because you might have to test that theory. Mm-hmm. I want to know that deep down, right? Finals of the French, if Rafa's not completely healthy, uh, finals of Madrid, finals of the French, I want to know that you also believe it, right? So there's two sides to that. Give a yeah. little. What was your take on that comment and? Um, Will it help him or hurt him? I think he's taking a page straight out of the Rafael Nadal playbook where Rafa has always been asked this, whether he was two in the world battling against uh, Roger to get to one, um, whether it was against Novak, he was always, you know, deflecting and saying, no, this guy's the best in the world at this moment. And what it does for Rafa that I like, that there's a good another good part of this is that you take the pressure of winning that match. You take the pressure of, of being number one and you hand it over. It's like, no, I'm doing fine, but this is the guy over here. And I think in this situation, I'm okay with it because I think he's just generally just copying and pasting what Rafa typically does. I think Carlos, now he's had two stints at number one. I think the belief is 
cemented. I think he does believe he can beat. Now, he beat Novak in the finals of Madrid. Is that correct? Last yeah. year? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was five in the third from, from memory. It was close. Um, but I think... I, I think he's got that now. I, I don't think that that's going to be a problem. But my goodness, taking Novak out of the sunshine double, letting him train, letting him freshen up, letting him hit the gym like he's been doing, you know, it, everybody, every other player should be worried slash scared slash petrified that a fresh Novak is back and he's got more to prove on the clay. <laughs> I agree. And it'd be interesting to see if Rafa comes back healthy. Yes. And if he is not 100%, I don't know that an 85% Rafa can beat a 100% Alcaraz. No. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. No. Or, uh, or Novak. Or Novak. Or Novak. I don't, I don't see, you know, obviously it's all draw dependent. Um, yes. But I, you know, if I would, I don't know. I don't know how good I feel about Rafa's chances of coming back and just claiming, mm -hmm. automatically saying he's going to win Roland Garros. I don't know if I feel confident in that, based on the physicality. Right. That I see Alcaraz bringing uh, Novak. We all always bring centers now. Bringing. Right. I don't know that no, that that Rafa can win any of those three matches. Right. At eighty-five percent of himself. So, yeah. you know, for all those Rafa fans, I agree. We might not, we might be disappointed in this yeah. role. Well, one of the things from the past decade that is has been such a pleasure of my job, um, analyzing players and studying our game is that is the clay court season for Rafa. You know, starting in Monte Carlo, I went to Monte Carlo probably six times now to that tournament. Um, amazing tournament, amazing tournament. And then building through Barcelona and building through Madrid and then going to, to Rome, which I'll be at this year. I've always, you know, I've, I have this in print, you know, is that Rafa wins Roland Garros before Roland Garros starts. He wins it between Monte Carlo and he wins it between Rome and he starts to build his confidence. And one thing that Rafa does extremely well is he saves break points. During the next six weeks to eight weeks, typically the toughest point to win in tennis has been break point against Rafa. So if Rafa's serving 30-40, good luck. Good luck trying to win that point. What's fascinating, though, is that if the opponent's serving to Rafa and the opponent's down 15-40, this is, this is something I've, I've looked at again for a decade. Rafa has this unusual tendency to kind of go in a little bit of a shell and, and, you know, the weakest return is going to be that ball. And he just kind of hopes the opponent's going to give it to him. And sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. And it's it's so weird. It's like, okay, I you know, I would be sitting with people. I'm like, Rafa's not going to play a good point. And they're like, what are you talking about? It's break point. But it's not break point. On, if it's break point on Rafa's serve, he's coming at you like a bull. But if it's break point on the other person's serve, he's always been more passive there. 15-40 turns into 30-40, turns into juice, turns into four juices, and he gets it done. But he's a different animal in those two situations. Well, he won't have that luxury this time around. No he chance. Is, he will not have that luxury. Even a guy like TP, Tommy Paul, or, or Francis, yeah. who have wins on him now, right? Yeah. Will, will not, that will not happen.
And people will also say that, well, go back two years when Rafa won the Australian Open, he only played Melbourne 1 as the lead-in. Yes, he did play Melbourne 1 as the lead-in and then he won the Australian Open. But you're not playing Rome and making quarters and going to win Roland Garros. That's almost impossible. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's transition to the women. Yes. I, I thought that Petra Kvitova let Indian Wells slip out of her hands. Mm-hmm. You mentioned I, thought, I agree. I, I thought she had a tough match there, and she was a couple points away from winning that event. But she didn't let Miami get away. And we talked about that, right? We talked, we talked about how I think Rabakana, Sabalinka are like new age versions of Petra. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously more athletic, you know, better moving forward, right? Mm-hmm. They'll probably be better moving forward. Uh, not great, though, mm-hmm. right? I think is great when she's up there. I don't think she moves there well, right? I don't think she appro- her approach shots are, you know, average to below average. But if she gets there, she can volley, obviously, from playing doubles with Mertens. But I thought that Kavitova sort of stepped up and delivered for me. I, I sort of – I think I picked Iga, but I thought that, you know, Petra had a chance to do it. So I thought that was a good tournament. Uh, but one of the things that I find really interesting when you look at Miami and now we're transitioning to Charleston and into the clay court swing, none of the players that are playing well play well on clay. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we talk about anybody can win on the women's side. When yeah. you go into this particular clay court season, that's even more true. Robakin is playing great, yeah. doesn't play well on clay. Mm-hmm. Sabalinka plays great, mm-hmm. plays on the best surface. Ega's a little bit banged up, injured. Uh, Petra's playing great, plays not her best surface. Mm-hmm. Gula's playing great, plays not her best surface. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so I think there's a huge opportunity these next two months for players 15 to 30, right, to make a good move or good opportunity for a player inside 10 that didn't have that great of a sunshine double. Yeah. Coco Golf to make a move. Yeah. What do you yeah, think? Listen, all very valid points. I think also there is a silver lining for Iga not to have played Miami is that she can take that, you know, start of the year and, and maybe, you know, she's hasn't been at her peak and just kind of move that to the side, have an extra two weeks yeah. to recover, have an extra two weeks to get mentally healthy, you know, pull a Novak and go to the mountains and go camping for a few days and freshen up, um, do all of those things. And then I, I think I think you're exactly right. But I, I think it's like, okay, we need to insert Iga 
back as the favourite and then these 15 through 30s, hopefully they don't get on her side of the draw. Hopefully they can play her deeper. Well, hopefully some of these other ladies get to, to figure out clay a little bit, get to figure out, you know, I'm going to put a little bit more arc on this ball. I'm going to figure out my slide to the ball instead of the slide after the ball. I'm going to figure out that I can step up to the baseline and then pull a drop shot and, and maybe change my grip and get more backspin on that ball, add a little bit more variety. It's not just standing and, and banging balls. Do that seven or eight shots out of 10, but having the nuances of clay, whether it is spin, whether it is depth, whether it is short balls, and, and add that to your game. And all of a sudden, you know, I remember it just flashes back in my head, Andy Murray talking about, you know, I guess with maybe 2000 and I'm, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there. He, he wasn't doing great on clay. He never talked about himself doing great. And all of a sudden, he's going deep in these clay court tournaments and deep at Roland Garros. And he's like, well, maybe I am a good clay court player after all. But it took Andy a while to build that confidence and the, the ability to be able to make a comment like that. And I think for these ladies, they should look back and give Andy a call. It's like, Andy, how did you do it? How did you, <clears throat> how did you figure this out? So... We'll see. I, I think that there's certainly the ability to learn clay and develop this year. Yeah, I think for those players, you know, the Sabalinkas, the Rabakinas, and Anja Bohr is not healthy, right? So she's not healthy enough to sort Top of have time of the year for her not to be healthy. She's oh so my God. Because yeah. if you look at that pack, I would consider her just outside of that pack. Of course. But this, would, this would be her time to sneak in, right, and get that. But when you look at those, those groups of players, yeah. You know, I don't know that they can make enough progress, right? The way I see Sabalenka Rabakina um, sort of struggle is they do yeah. get to, you know, you now have to play all three squares, right? You got to play the front, the front of the court. And we see them able to get to balls up there, but they're not on balance. And they're sort of unsure on what to do, right? Because you're not on balance. That means you're the head of your racket is also unbalanced and you can't drop effectively. You can't go cross court. You, they're just... I don't know that they can make that much progress where you look at, I got down, I have a couple players that I think we should look out for. Number one, Coco. Uh, obviously, number one, Iga, if she's healthy, right? Sure. Who, who, who can play the front of the court and get to the balls on balance and time enough to control the ball, control the shot. Iga and Coco. Trevi Sun. Yeah, I've, I've got four players. I'm looking at the rankings right now. I've got four players that I, I'm going to, throw your way and give me a, a kind of a quick take on what your thoughts are for them through this clay court season. So the first is number four in the world, Carolyn Garcia, your thoughts. I think she struggles. I think she'll do fine in Madrid. I think she'll do fine in Rome. Uh, I think she will struggle at the French. Okay. I think she'll, I think she'll, you know, three rounds, four rounds, quarters, and I think the pressure of playing at home will get to her. Number nine, Maria Sakari. Sakari, yeah, that is a that is an opening. Um, I think she struggles when she gets to the semis of big events, particularly on her serve. The double faults ramp up, right? The forehand errors ramp up. She's in range though. She's she's in that pack. Number twelve, Barbara Krejcikova. Krejcikova's there. I don't know that she's, you know, she had a little bit of an injury, so she's coming back now. I don't know that she's got enough matches uh, and playing well enough to win another slam. Oh, last this is a good thing. Time. 
Lastly, one of my favorites, I was there when she won Roland Garros number 21, Yelena Ostapenko. That's a sneaky one. So, so my so my last two were gonna be Ostapenko. Okay. And Quinn Win Zhang. Yeah, yeah, good one. Great young player, Asian player, coaches from Barcelona, grew up playing on clay. She's 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 really good. And I think she's sort of under the radar enough, mm-hmm. where there's no expectation, not a lot of pressure. Um, but she's getting enough. She had a Vogue cover. She's getting enough attention to, to draw some confidence and believe she belongs. So I like Quinwen Zhang. I like Astapenko. I like Sakari. That's a good one. I like Coco. And I like Iga. Yeah. And I think the big dogs that have dominated the first quarter of this year, I think they're going to have a seat and take a back seat the next two months. Good for the game. Good, good for the for game. You. Yeah. No, I'm down with that for sure. I'm greatly looking forward to it. As I mentioned, I'll be in Rome. I I, I speak at the um, the Italian Federation, have a big biannual um, symposium, a global symposium. So every coach, if you're, you have to be registered with the Italian Federation to coach in Italy. Every coach comes for that. There's three and a half thousand people in a stadium. I've spoken in there with Nick Bolateri and Tony Nadal and a bunch of other people. It's an amazing day. It's the Saturday before. This year, the Pope is coming to bless the symposium out on court. So that will be a a fun little addition um, to the symposium. But the the reason I bring this up is I'll be there early. I'm going to watch some quality matches. I'm going to watch a bunch of first round matches and really get a good feel for who's feeling it in Rome, who can go deep in Rome and then carry that on to Roland Garros. And I think before we go, before I let you go, we got to give our flowers to the great players because I think these past two events as we wrap up the American swing with Indian Wells and Miami, it is hard to win a sunshine double. Yes. Unless you're Roger Federer. Unless you're Roger Federer. Or Marcelo Rios. Or Marcelo Rios. And I think that is one of the toughest things. So I wanted to say Carlos Alcaraz is good. The next step is becoming great, right? Mm -hmm. The next step is being able to win and then win again the very next week, right? There's not a lot of, I mean, Madrid and Rome are where it's two 1,000s back to back, right? Mm -hmm. And that is greatness, to be able to have the draw, be healthy, really should have probably won Miami, right? To actually win and then win again. That's what separates the good from the great. And we've seen Rafa do it. We've seen Fed do it. We saw Novak do it. Marcelo Rios, right? He snuck in there and did it, right? But I think that's when I look at this crop of players, the Rabakas, the Sabalinkas, who's going to step up, right? We saw Azarenka did it, right? Um, who I would consider she's going to be a Hall of Famer and you know go down as one of the greatest. We saw Serena. But I think that is what separates these young players need to think about what do I need to do to be great? And I think we saw Ika do it last year, win a, a bunch of tournaments in a row, right? Um, but, you know, to win one, win a 1,000 and then win the next 1,000. Not a lot of opportunities to do it where you got them back to back. And I think this is one, if I'm a player that's good and wants to be great, you got to put this on your bucket list of things. Yeah. And, and lastly, with that, I kind of think back to like, well, if I'm working with a player that's, that's trying to accomplish this, where do we find that 1% 
extra that can make this thing happen. And certainly you can look to the player themselves and go, we can sharpen the sword with forehands or backhands or volleys or approach shots. We can make your game that little bit better. But there's also the other part is go and study your opponents and figure out the right way to play them. Don't make it a tough match. Don't play to their strengths. You know, there's so little talked about of players studying opponents. You look to basketball and Kobe Bryant and football, um, you know, that's all they do. They talk about it constantly. We're watching film. You know, we're, that's that's what they do. They study, are they going to move this way or that way? I think for a lot of these players, they think it's about themselves. Maybe it is a little bit, but I think it's about understanding the opponent as well. Look to that. And secondly, it's just that confidence. You know, I go always go back to Leighton Hewitt. Um, when he, he just won, he just won Queens. I forget who he beat in the final. Maybe Federer, maybe? I, I forget. But he's, he wins, it's the last shot, he's running to the net, he hits the winner, and he's, and he's running to the net, and he holds his hand up like this. And he's like, I'm now five in the world. And his determination, his determination and his grit and his guts. One of the things that Alcaraz says, he's watching Rocky movies all the time. It's exactly what, what um, Hewitt did. So I think, you know, that, that belief, that mongrel dog, we like to call it in Australia, that just says, I'm not going away, I'm, I'm here, I'm going to bleed, I'm going to do what it takes, and that confidence is going to get them through. But it's also the other side of the court. It's also being smart. It's also knowing what the opponent's going to do, especially in the big points. And, um, you know, bringing all those things together can take a good player to a great player. Yes, and, and, and taking your observations, coupling that with the coaches. Absolutely. What did you see? Bring your bring your observations to the conversation and make it more of a two way dialogue. Versus, Always. Versus, all right, coach. You know, I'm just gonna start. Here's what we got to do. Right. Here's what you need to do to win. Here are the three things. It's like, what did you see? And I think, under pressure, if you did your own homework, you'd feel more confident in what to do next. Versus, absolutely, trust absolutely. The game has the way to go, but that's why we love it because it's always changing, it's always growing, and it's always an opportunity to grow. So, Craig, I want to thank you for always sharing your insights. It's always fun. Uh, obviously, pre-tournament and post-tournament, wrapping it up with you, uh, analyzing what happened in the look ahead. Uh, we will touch base again with you uh, after the clay court season to see if all the things we talked about uh, come to fruition. But yeah. a lot of opportunities for some players who haven't won a slam yet coming this clay court season mm -hmm. um, for the women. And I think this clay court season will answer a lot of questions we have mm -hmm. about Alcaraz matching up against the greats who we will see return to the clay court coming up soon. Arrested Novak. Arrested Novak. <laughs> and an 85% Rafa. You know, that's a, <laughs> we'll see that. So yeah. this has been the Tennis.com podcast with Craig. Oh, Shaughnessy, thank you for joining. Now, thank you so much, mate. Bye.